Hi there, and welcome to the e-commerce marketing 101 podcast brought to you by Dash, the visual content management tool for DC businesses. In this podcast, we'll be chatting with marketers and creatives just like you. We'll cover the campaigns and design methods they've used to grow their DC brand so you can grow yours. I'm your host, Barney. Let's kick off today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the e-commerce marketing 101 podcast. Today, I'm really excited to say we're sitting down with Unko Goyal, the VP for growth at baby care brand Cottery. So Cottery were listed on the foremost 50 list, which highlights fast growing DC brands that are redefining the fashion, beauty, home and consumer goods sectors. So it's really cool that they've been included in that. The brand has shaken up the baby care industry by focusing on the quality of their product, working with brand advocates like supermodel Carly Koss and much more. So it's pretty safe to say that Cottery are on an upward trajectory, and that's in part down to the work that Unko and his team have been doing. He's grown the growth team at Cottery and his DTC credentials are bona fide. So I'm really excited to talking to him today. Hello, Unko, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. How are you today? I'm good. I was just saying it's Halloween here, which might date this podcast. So, you know, it's a good day stateside. Yes, indeed. It's feeling festive. Okay, cool. So let's start off a bit about your background. You've had a really interesting career so far. You've done a bit of computer science, growth marketing, a bit of brand marketing. So talk us through it a bit and what made you settle on growth marketing. Yeah. So the way I kind of approached this, and I mean, I was thinking about this, right, when I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I knew I wanted to be in marketing. It seemed to be the thing that I was gravitating towards. I was reading a lot about it. So it was probably a good sign that that's what I wanted to do. But I was a really quantitative person. And the part of marketing that got me excited back then was when everyone was talking about the future of big data in marketing. Now, what we know now is that what that ultimately became is growth marketing. And that's probably why I'm here. The way I meandered through that, though, was kind of what you mentioned saying, okay, maybe if I understand computer science and data systems really well and marketing academically, I can figure something out. And then, hey, I had this internship 12 years ago with Facebook ads when they were just coming out. That seems like a thing that makes sense on this overall journey. Okay, that's really cool. A lot of small brands are doing this, but what are the big brands doing? So that's a way to brand marketing. And then when I kind of did all those things, I said, okay, after having these varied experiences, and at that point, the first wave of DTC brands were established and the position of growth marketer was created, I said, okay, I think this is all kind of culminating towards, let's just do this and lean in here. So it took me four years of college and schooling to kind of meander through this and about three years of my early career to try on different things. And then for the past six, seven years have been firmly in growth. Cool. So you're that quite rare marketer who is both able to be creative, but you've also got that data and analytical side to you, which quite frankly, I'm jealous of. That is what I've been trying to do. And I think I've seen both of those sides help me in different ways. So yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to do here. And when I think other growth marketers, I think that's what we're all trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've been at Coterie since I think 2021. What drew you to the brand initially? Yeah, I've been working with a lot of direct-to-consumer brands before Coterie. I was at an agency called Ampush, who had a really cool model where you were really embedded into these brands. And so I was able to understand how they worked what they were doing great, what maybe was driving some headwinds for them. And it gave me a pretty strong POV on what I think would make a great brand. And so when I was looking at Coterie, it was the things that would make a great brand. And fundamentally, 
I had to look for the things that I knew I needed my team to help me with that I couldn't do independently. That really started with the product. You know, any direct-to-consumer is just a distribution method. At the end of the day, it's just a way to get good products to people. And so if you don't have the good product component of it, all creative strategy and Facebook ads and whatever aren't going to help you or aren't going to help you for very long. So what I saw with Coterie was a really differentiated, superior product. I saw consumer reviews that indicated that the way that they were better and differentiated resonated with consumers. And I saw the data on the retention curves to say like, yeah, they're putting their money where their mouth is. It's not just a review, they're coming back. And those are the things that, again, as growth marketers, I sometimes think we think we know a lot and can do everything. You don't want me developing a diaper product (laughs) in a manufacturing facility and figuring that out, right? Like that's what we needed the rest of the team for. And that was what we had. And that was amazing. And the biggest fundamental thing that we had. And I think the other thing that on top of that, that was really exciting that we still have is we have diaper engineers, diaper experts still on the team because making one great product once isn't going to help you when you have the full R&D power of some of your big CPGs, global CPGs chasing you down. So it's like, how do you keep innovating and how do you have a team that believes that consistent innovation is what matters and like those, all of those things. The other really big thing that I was excited about with Coterie, and this is relevant to growth leaders, I think, is not every leadership team, I think, understands how to work with growth. I'm sure we've all had those struggles in the past. Like, how do you connect that? When I was picking, you know, companies I wanted to work with, I said, hey, listen, if I have the option to work with someone that understands growth and makes my life easier in that way, why not? And I did find that with the leadership team at Coterie. And that's what's allowed me to just have any of the wins that I had. It means you can focus most of your energy on the actual doing rather than having to educate and build that internal consensus of what you want to do. Correct. It's like growth is not just a button that you hire me to push. But like, you know, when your team can come to you and be like, okay, cool. Like, so what are some of the tests you ran this week and what do we learn? Not week, month. And what do we learn? It's simple things like that that aren't so simple and makes you understand that they realize that growth is like, it's about taming something that's unpredictable versus that being a thing that, you know, just happens when you show up with a barrel of media dollars. Yeah, that makes sense. And it must also be really nice knowing that you're marketing a product that is genuinely like really solid and really stands out by itself to the competitors. You're not trying to pull one over on the audience or kind of like hoodwink them into something like it's a genuinely great product. Right. That's the foundation of it. Several great products have been marketed and brought to market and effectively. And like, you know, that's what I think we're going to talk about today and how to do that. But let's start with the basics. Figure out a solid consumer problem. And then let's talk about growth and creative strategy. And what I'm talking about today. On that note, talk to me a bit about Coterie and why your product is superior to the competitors. Yeah. So it was designed to be more absorbent and higher performing as one of the big tenants of it. And it was also designed to be made of cleaner materials and we published that report you know i think the way that the diaper market had gone in the united states was saying that cost is the most important thing and hey you know what for the majority of the market actually that is factually true and like that makes sense diapers are expensive and we empathize with that the thing that we were saying is we believe there's a segment of the market that is willing to say we actually performance and materials and the other benefits of the product 
at least are equally as important, if not slightly more, can you make things for me that drive that? And that's how we looked at it, how we approached and who we're building for. So that's is like, yeah, can you get me superior performance? Can you get me better materials? And I think the thing that was the aha moment for me was in our reviews, we had a bunch of parents saying, oh, these diapers are so much more absorbent. I was able to sleep because I didn't have to do a nighttime diaper change. That was the day when I read those reviews that I was able to like, great, where do I sign? Like, because I'm not a parent myself, but if I can hear those stories from parents, that becomes a really compelling case to build to a parent. That is really interesting. I was just thinking of the adverts I've seen for diaper or nappy rounds, like we say in the UK, which I'm sure is important to the parent, of course, but it's all about the comfort for the child, which obviously Coterie have covered, but you don't see really anything about the benefit it would bring to the parent as well. Yeah. And that's actually, so I think that's how this all connects from like a, if we're going to like brand building one-on-one, it's like, how do you tie your product to a broader ethos and a positioning? And that's the through line. Coterie is building a baby brand for parents. It's a parent-centric brand. And so the product underpins that, right? You have these value props that benefit your baby and you have the digital experience trying to prioritize the parents, but then your brand positioning and even like the brand aesthetic and all those things are just consistent with that. We're not just doing it for elevation's sake. We're doing it because we are insisting on talking to the parent. I was going to ask about that because I was looking at your website, coachery.com, and that really stood out to me as well that where other baby care brands are very childlike and they use lots of like primary colors and they almost look like they are brands for children, even though obviously the baby isn't the one buying the diaper. With your website, it's like so slick, refined. You've got those like beautiful revolving 3D models of the diapers on your homepage. It looks really refined and adult. And from just hearing what you were saying then, that seems like it was a conscious decision that you're kind of appealing more to the parent, the kind of performance angle of it. Exactly. That is very conscious. And I wish I could take credit for coming up with the render, but that is not me. That is like the rest of the team supporting us. But then, yeah, where do you deploy that? How do you use that to drive scale? That's where I would have strong points of view. So you were saying a little bit about the research when you were talking to parents. I wanted to ask, like, how is it that you settled on your direct points of difference and the messages that you were really going to hammer home in your growth advertising. Yeah. So if I'm rewinding two years ago, I come into this company that's already been existing. They already have a small, but like rapidly growing base of customers. What do we do? What do we prioritize? And so for me, I'm very much about, especially at that stage of company, use the data that you have and make a hypothesis that you can probably test cheaply. If you ask me this nine, eight years ago, when I was doing segmentation studies at like a big consultancy. I would probably have launched a survey and surveys are great tools, but they're really expensive. And they ultimately like the goal of all of these things, at least in my world is get really good inspiration that you can just test and market and then see what actually works. Cause there's also the inspiration and how you can execute on it. So for me, the data I had available to me was reviews. We had a ton of reviews. So I'm like, great, I'm going to read all of those. I talked to the people that designed our diaper and I said, like, how did you design this? What do you think is the things that you intentionally put into this? And it's funny because the ultimate thing you go to market with is a kind of a Venn diagram of those things or it's consumer driven. It's whatever the consumer says really is what I'm going to prioritize. So the whole sleep thing, 
yeah, our engineers and our designers said, hey, you know, like we have this absorbency. One of the benefits they might see is this. It's designed with that kind of benefit in mind. But then seeing it so strongly in the reviews, I was like, okay, wait, let's start with this. And it's funny because it's not like one of the big things you decide to test, but clean materials is a whole other thing you decide to test, right? Is another thing that I went to market with and tested. Also softness. I kind of forgot to talk about softness and comfort, but our engineers talked about that a whole lot and so did our reviews. So I'm like, great, let's go to market with like these three. My first couple of tests that I'm going to do when I arrive here is say, hey, which of these are going to work the best? Also, by the way, people weren't doing nothing when I got here. They were already creative in market. And I was like looking at that. Hey, did this talk about sleep or absorbency or clean materials or this? And like, which one's doing better? So I had my hunches. And it's funny because some of them completely fell flat and some of them were really compelling. And if you want to look at my RAS library, you can buy, figure out which is which. But yeah, there's some things out there that are really important parts of your products. People will tell you they're buying the product for them and they are. But it's also about where do you introduce that information? The thing that grabs your attention in a Facebook ad might not be the thing that you poured your heart into making a part of the product. That makes sense. Like often what you might feel is really strong and that you're really excited to go out to audiences with might just fall flat on the one that you're maybe spent half as much time working on, like ad creative that you then go with is the one that's successful. I guess that's why it's good that you're testing and you're always testing hypotheses by the sound of it. Yeah. What I was referring to is even like the part of your experience that you built. I'll give you a really tangible example. I'm really proud of our CX function. It's amazing. And, you know, you need to run, like, I think a really honest and just a customer love brand. You need really, really great CX. And this happened to me several times throughout, actually, inevitably in a rainstorm. One other thing that comes up is like, wow, but you have really great return policy. And like, that should be a reason why that someone should feel comfortable buying from us. It makes complete sense. And you put a lot of time and effort and it's not cheap to have a great return policy. But then when you make the ad, it comes out by coterie, you can return it easily. Probably not the thing that is going to catch someone's attention to say, I should buy this product. It's probably a thing that doesn't belong in the ad. It probably belongs right at checkout. And that's a very like black and white, easy to understand version of this, but there's more nuanced examples of this too. Yeah. That makes sense. We did a similar thing, actually, even though we're in completely different markets. We tried messaging and ads for a bit that was like, get Dash, you can cancel within a month if you wanted to. It's the same kind of thing. Exactly. It's like, well, so like, is this any good? Like, what does this help us do? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I think that's really interesting. You explaining the process because that is something any DTC brand listening, regardless of sector, could go away and look at if they wanted to start doing what you've done and settling on some really like strong product messaging. The point where you settle on your points of difference to then turning that into actual messaging, which converts and does what you want it to. What was the process like for you at Coterie? How did you do that? Yeah, the process there, it's kind of about, for me, just plugging it in to the existing process. And here's what I mean by that. And again, I've tried this before. It just, it's not the way that I'm able to get stuff to work. So I've tried the very like, okay, guys, here's the strategy. Like we're going to go really hard on clean materials as a thing. We're going to go really hard on that. Let's build out like a bunch of creative around this. This very like more campaign driven approach. And at least, you know, in growth world, that's a really risky thing to do because you're putting a ton of time into this and effort and it might not land. And by the way, as you're developing this campaign, 
are you still doing stuff or are you kind of like stuck with your old creative? That's like a lot of risks that you're taking with that approach. So the way I would refine that is say, hey, listen, we sell the weekly or bi-weekly creative iteration process, but we have new information by which we can prioritize things. So we just got new information from doing all this review work that, hey, things that like concepts that message, I'm just going to use clean materials as an example. Clean materials, like you have multiple points that are saying it. Let's do our roadmap and like we always do. Let's, for the brainstorm though, bring three ideas to the brainstorm on how other brands are messaging clean materials or like safety. And we'll prioritize those things we do and continue to take at least one or two of those ideas from the next sprint. By the way, in the next sprint, we're still going to do an iteration of the other champion that's already working because even though it doesn't mention clean materials, it's working and are clean materials that might not. So the trade-off here is that your outcome doesn't result in a clean materials go-to-market, right? You're going to end that process about maybe two months of doing that. Be like, great, we found one clean material champion and we still have a bunch of other stuff in market that's talking about our text message ordering system. For me, that's okay. And I think that's the right thing to do. I think the other approach that's very campaign driven gets you to be very clean materials oriented in your marketing and your messaging. But I do think it has a lot more performance risk. It's not an approach that I would advocate for my team. Explain a little bit about that performance risk. What would you say is the risk? Yeah. So I think the risk manifests in like three different ways. Let's pretend you're taking a campaign orientation to this. So one, the risk is you not knowing how the assets will perform. So you are putting a lot of like high effort with unknown performance. You have a decent hunch that they're going to do well. I mean, at the point that we were at in this two years ago, we hadn't tested a lot of those things. So we don't have really firm data on that. So that's risk A. And then risk B, I think, is kind of the opportunity cost, not to get like super academic about it, but it's like, yeah, and while you're developing this really big campaign, can you sustain regular innovation or not? And if you can't, then you're taking, you're saying, hey, my Facebook creative won't fatigue for the six weeks to eight weeks while I'm making this, which is a gamble that I don't know if a lot of growth marketers would want to make. So I see the risk playing out in both ways. And there's also the last risk of like a campaign driven approach. It isn't necessarily expensive, I'll be honest, but it tends to be more expensive than something that's less campaign driven. So to kind of bring it back is like, how do you do it? Figure out with the assets that you have and the things that you have, what is the best way that you can understand if there's more traction in value prop A versus value prop B, and then move with it. And then when you get traction on one, then you can justify more investment and justify maybe that more like campaign driven thing later that you have like more data that it's going to work. The last thing I'll say on this is that I think the trap that I've fallen into in the past is assuming that value prop A versus value prop B, honestly, the ads that work the best have value prop A, B, and C. It's just what you start with. So when I say A or B, it's more about what you start with. So in terms of the channels then that you're using, we'll move more onto like the actual channels that you found are working really well for Coterie. What have you seen success with in the past like year or so? Yeah, I've mentioned Facebook 10 times already. So it's no shot that that is a Facebook. And when I say Facebook, I mean the meta platform. I just can't get myself to say meta regularly. So Facebook and Instagram, the meta platform is going to be a big driver. And when you're early, I think it makes sense. And the other thing I'm really excited about is how we've gotten traction with linear television, which I don't think anyone would have said is a slam dunk idea when you're marketing towards people that are largely 30 to 35. And then the other bit of it has been influencer. And we've really tackled that channel 
from three or four different approaches. So you've seen some of that effort when you mentioned Carly Kloss, and that is someone that is a separate team that are really understands how to work with really high profile celebrities, which is just, in my opinion, a very evolved version of influencer. And then there's what the growth team is doing, which is using influencer as a conversion driving channel and building really strong relationships with people, creating programs where they're getting rewards and constant communication and product and everything so that they're able to make this worth their while. And meanwhile, make it really mutual for us too. You mentioned working with the big name celebrities. That's a separate team that your team are working on Mesa campaigns and UGC and ambassadors stuff. How have you seen all of the channels like working together? So I think what's really smart is that the way that marketing's evolved over the past 30 years, whatever, you used to have marketing teams and you used to have sales teams. And sales teams had very different channels than marketing teams. With direct-to-consumer, by definition, your sales channel has become your marketing channels. And they've now merged, even though the mentality of a sales team is very different than the mentality of a marketing team. But they're using the same tools. And I think what I really like about how our teams are structured is that we just acknowledge the reality of, wait a minute, there is still this sales type team and function and mentality, and there's still that marketing mentality, even though they use the same channels, let's not think they're doing the same thing. And so you have teams that are really, really good at driving awareness and saying, you know what? No, I'm not a sales team. I'm not going to quantify the exact, like if I had to do that, I, I could never justify a really big partnership. I couldn't measure it and back out, but it is highly likely that it will. I mean, that's the first thing that you picked up on or one of the things you picked up on doing your research. So like there's something there. So structuring incentives differently, making sure that they have the incentives, the allowance to do stuff that is ultimately good for the brand. But like, we're not going to spend a ton of time chasing our tails, trying to figure out exactly where it manifested is like, that's exactly what they should be doing. And then we should be doing that side of the stuff that is measurable and great. Invest more in it and go there. The way that they then interact is great. We have this amazing resource. How do we best leverage this resource? And so here's a tangible example, like, oh, turns out having a celebrity endorsement has a really strong impact on site when you put it near the add to cart button. Cool. That's my world. So right now that we have this amazing resource, I can use that to help even further advance my goals and kind of taking it from there. Another example is so Ashley Graham was also a partner for Coterie. And so, you know, they had their objectives on awareness. I'm like, knocked it out of the park there, but we said, hey, you know what? I think we have this data point on like this ad format that really works for conversion. Could we get a quick video of Ashley doing that too? And like that work, right? And so it's just taking advantage of what you have and playing to each team's strength. Yeah, that must be nice being in a company that it doesn't feel like things exist in a silo because almost the team building those big brand awareness campaigns can not like rest easy, but it must be comforting to them knowing that they're going to be producing content, which then is able to be used elsewhere. Like it's not going to exist in a vacuum. Your team can use it. You can use different experiments like that to prove the value of doing campaigns like what you just described. Yeah, I agree with that. And not to defecate too much, but like separating that out again, kind of speaks to that campaign versus sprint mentality. Those kind of partnerships take a lot of time. And like, you have to kind of work on a campaign orientation on those. So everything about the way you tackle these things is so different process-wise, skill set-wise, 
just acknowledging how different they are for me has been very liberating and allowed us both to do what we do best. Nice. So Facebook, Instagram, Meta ads, from the creative angle, what have you seen performing particularly well currently? Surprisingly, statics have had a resurgence for us. I don't know if that's the case across others, but this time last year, we probably wouldn't be producing many statics. But right now, I have a suspicion it's because our packaging has gotten more explanatory. So a static does more for us than it used to. So that might be a coterie-specific thing versus an algo-specific thing. But hey, pro tip, if your packaging says something about the product, sometimes that's enough to be a value prop in itself. The other things that are working for us in general are going to be those kind of video ads that have that format where you're starting with a really compelling hook and then explaining more about the product. So like this broader explainer video, but a lot of different variants on that. And then of course, there's this third pillar is finding the right creators and publisher partners that already like have great content around your brand, genuinely like your product. And then you're like, okay, great. Actually, can we promote that content? as the ad and the landing page. So that's that whole thing of whitelisting that's around there. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that part of our strategy. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I just wanted to touch a bit on your ambassador program and how you've seen real success with that. Could you talk us through a bit about that and how that's been working? Yeah. An ambassador program is not something that I ever thought I would be running. And I'll be honest, I have someone on my team that runs it very, very well. So I don't think I'd run it either, but I don't think it was something that would ever roll up into me. But yeah, it was really interesting because when we started it, it actually sat as like a more of that like brand marketing shift, part of that, like more like, okay, that world that we just talked about. And I looked at it, I said, wait a minute, this exactly plays into the skill sets of the growth function. Can we try this out and see what happens? And so the really positive feedback loop that's been established here is that we can optimize this program now to be optimal for conversion. And what that means is we realize that it's like, okay, you can give a lot better regular communication to help our ambassadors just come up with content and posts and, you know, be like, okay, so giving regular communication, new stuff that's going on with the brand, things that they can talk about, incentivizing them properly. It's like, hey, you're putting all this effort in. We want you to profit off of this too. So we want you to have commissions. And so we set that up really nicely and we set up really nice tiers so that the better you do, the commissions even increase because we want you to make even more money, like the more we're able to do. Structuring it that way and just really providing the right incentives to make this go win-win was a really big part of the program. I also think the trade-off that we made was asking more, but giving more. So historically, the program was a little less structured and like, great, you're an ambassador, whatever redemptions you get, great. It was kind of hands-off in that way. What we said actually is like, hey, listen, if you're going to be ambassador, like we we're going to make to the program if we know you're going to like succeed and you have the following to succeed. And we're going to give you a lot of those commissions. We're going to give you regular gifts and all that good stuff. But you should be posting regularly or like there's like a monthly posting week, like everyone should be posting this week kind of thing, which fact, frankly is a structure that I think is easier for everyone to remember this week I should post. So it's not this like always on thing. And then you can kind of take that and the flywheel happens when it's like, well, the people that are going to create the best content about your brand, you're talking to them and they're posting about you every month and they're in your program. So when you need content for your brand, for other stuff, it's a really win-win. I can be like, great, I have an even better opportunity for you for like even more paid content. And then we know already that we're going to get high quality content that we can use in footage for paid ads and all that good stuff. Nice. How have you been tracking that then? 
are you using tools in order to do that? We use a tool called Grin. Grin is an influencer platform and not an ambassador platform. So that's how it's designed. So we've had to like hack it a little bit to make it work for as an ambassador platform, but now it's great. And a lot of automated flows, it's kind of like an ambassador CRM now. So that's very good for us. I mean, the amount of ambassadors that we're able to have in our program, triple digit ambassador accounts being managed by one to two people. So the automation of that definitely allows us to have that kind of scale. Okay, cool. So you have grown the growth team at Coterie. When we chatted a while ago, I literally wrote this quote down, so it was so good. You said creative is the lifeblood of every acquisition operation. So you talk me through a bit how you've grown the growth team and how what you've said about the creative being so important to customer acquisition, how you've embedded that within it. I do think creative is really fundamental for really strong vision, especially with the way platforms are moving. Everyone's saying this. I think it's very true. You have to manage media well, of course, but that's no longer enough of an edge to win. It's like, yeah, are you persuading people really well in your advertising? And so for me, because that was so important and we needed someone that was so close to what's going on here and thinking like a growth designer, there's actually a growth designer on our team. And for me, it was really important to have a growth designer on the growth team because I think the way that a growth designer is even just approaching design, the way that they're able to analyze data around it is different than the needs of someone that is designing other stuff too. It's just a different need set. I think it goes beyond designing for the channel. A lot of designers are really great at like knowing the medium that they're on. That's part of it. It goes beyond that too. And then I think it's also about just like, again, the incentives of it. It's like, if you're a designer that's like, hey, well, I have like 10 different requests on me. I have packaging to update. Yeah, you're not going to be able to just deliver the volume of that stuff that you need. Something's going to have to get deprioritized. So just kind of creating this some lane so that you just have someone thinking about this stuff all the time. The incentives just make it work. So yeah, for me, I think that's definitely something that I feel strongly about and part of whatever success we've had, like definitely a big part of whatever says I'm better. I guess if you're not a growth, you're kind of designer working in like brand or design you have an end day, don't you, where you like hand over the package. But what I thought was quite interesting for what I've understood of how your designer works in the growth team is that they're like always reiterating on the projects that they've delivered. Like it's not, they've just handed over the creative and they don't really like look at it again. They're always trying to improve it. Yeah. And again, it's just the way, like, I think it just worked with the way the incentives and the structure work. But yes, I think functionally what happens is let's go back to the celebrity example, right? Like where a brand team and a designer there might excel is you only get one shot, literally. <laughs> like you have one shoot day with that person. So like, this is a campaign. I have to plan out every detail of this thing and like think this thing through and like part direct the crap out of this thing. And frankly, I don't get follow-ups. So thinking about that too much isn't like going to be a good use of my time. So like that's that approach. But then if it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm actually just like working with 10 UGC content creators and trying to figure out the right evergreen creative that could work for me and think about, oh, wait, I can just slot parts of this thing out to create this optimized thing. Yeah, actually thinking about it too much up front is going to hurt you. And you actually probably need to be like, okay, great. Let me just get a couple of pieces of content, see what I can like work with and then be like, okay, this is the part that's holding the ad back. I can just sum something else in and keep it running. So I genuinely think it's a function of other constraints, but yes, it is important to create the constraints in a way so that you can create 
this evergreen mentality and this follow-up mentality for that's what works for growth design. Well, it sounds like you have this really like well-oiled, efficient team that you've built. If you were giving some advice to another growth lead who's maybe just thinking like, is now a good time to start growing the growth team? What would be some things that you would say to look out for as to whether they should or shouldn't go for it? For me, knowing whether or not we should be growing this is like, there's a couple of questions I ask myself, which is, would this be done better if somebody else was thinking about it all the time where we had a different skill set here? If the answer to that is yes, that's a good start. And then two, how much better do we think that would be? And then I try to quantify it. I mean, it's not a science, but you should have some, whatever assumption you have in your head about how much better this thing is going to be, like just write it down and be like, great, does that justify headcount? Because you could be thinking like, okay, great. Like, yeah, I'm going to get this person and then we're going to create like so many more assets. And you're like, yeah. And then is that going to double the size of what you can do? If it does, great. That's a great size for hire. But if you're like, oh crap. And then in order for that to actually make sense, I'd have to 10X everything that might be a bit of a gamble. Maybe it's better to bring on a full-time contractors to see if I can get that value. And then it is happening. And then I bring them on full-time, you know, there's different ways to go around that. Yeah. And go from that. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, just one last question to close this out. So for DC brands with their growth marketing, what do you think is the single thing you would recommend they focus on in order to do it really well? I think with growth marketing, the through line that I would say is no why you're different, know why you're better, use your growth marketing to figure out what's the best way to say that. Now, the best way to say that and to convince someone of that, yeah, that's going to be a lot of those like growth tactics and it might not look like the way it did 20 years ago. But if you're kind of just throwing stuff at the wall, but forgetting that your point and the reason you're doing this is to convince someone that you are better because of this one reason why you know you're better and everyone that buys you says you're better, you're just going to be doing a bunch of random stuff that doesn't actually translate to, yeah, your company. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Well, I think we're going to end it there then. So, Anchor, it's genuinely been a pleasure talking to you and hearing what you've been up to at Coterie. I think there's a load of interesting stuff that we covered that our listeners are going to find really helpful. Thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, and thank you for all of you at home listening and watching to this. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to e-commerce marketing 101, how to grow your DTC brand. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the series for actual tips you can use in your own e-commerce marketing. This podcast series is brought to you by Dash. If you need to get your visuals in front of potential customers faster, or you're sick of spending too much time sending assets to your retail partners, then we might have just what you've been looking for. Take a leap from leading e-commerce brands like Passenger Clothing and check out Dash.app. Just go to Dash.app to take out a free trial and try it for yourself.